Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters, belonging to Mahershalal Hashbaz, and have it attested for me by reliable witnesses, the priest Uriah and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Name him Mahershalal Hashbaz, for before the child knows how to call my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and melt in before Rezin and the son of Ramallah. Therefore, the Lord is bringing up against it the mighty flood waters of the river, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise above all its channels and overflow all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah as a flood and pouring over, it will reach up to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of the land, O Emmanuel. Band together, you peoples, and be dismayed. Listen, all you far countries. Gird yourselves and be dismayed. Gird yourselves and be dismayed. Take counsel together, for it shall be brought to naught. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me while his hand was strong upon me, and warn me not to walk in the way of his people, of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what it fears, or be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against. For both houses of Israel he will become a rock one stumbles over, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The second reading is from Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. So, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one who thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and has human approval. Let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean but it is wrong for you to make others fall by what you eat. It is good not to eat meat 
or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat, because they do not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. They gave me a tough one, didn't they? I might just pray to start. (laughs) Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your word. And we pray now as we reflect on what we've just read in Romans that you would speak to us and you would transform our hearts. Amen. Do you ever agree to disagree? Sometimes, no matter how hard we try, we just cannot understand the appeal or importance of some things. An argument I regularly have with Dave and Richard and Alison Glover is about the so-called magnificence of the sci-fi genre. Sorry, sci-fi lovers. Look, I just don't get it. Despite their regular lectures explaining the intellectual prowess and sophisticated storylines, despite my attempts to read or watch some of the quintessential novels or films, I just cannot see the appeal. Aliens, time travel, alternate realities. To me, Doctor Who is more like Doctor Who cares. (laughs) And so, sorry guys. (laughs) So we agree to disagree on the matter. We live in a world that agrees to disagree. The fault lines are drawn and the word tolerance is bandied about as a means by which we can achieve peace in our society. If we're all just tolerant, if we can mutually exist and agree to disagree, then things are going to be okay. Sounds pretty easy, but is it working out? Last week, Richard raised the question of where do I stand, highlighting how we as humans try to draw lines between ourselves whether it be figuring out what we think about a certain issues or ideas or ascribing ourselves to a particular camp or tribe. We heard about the dangers this can pose for us as Christians in our communities when we pass judgment on one another. As we think about what it means to be a community of peace in this series, there are some radically countercultural messages in Romans 14. Paul has been addressing issues that are threatening unity in Rome, particularly the quarrels over whether or not Christians should eat meat or observe particular holidays, or holy days. In the first half of this passage, we're challenged to consider what it means to stand in the Lord Jesus, to be able to cast aside our differences on the disputable manners, to avoid judgment and live together in love. In this next session of Romans 14, which we've just read, Paul digs down into the issue even more. What might this look like? Why is it so important? What does it mean to love others who we fundamentally disagree with on certain matters? How do we push past the easy, let's just agree to disagree? How can we protect each other from the broad-minded culture that says, you do you at the expense of others? And what might it look like if we lifted one another up in love? And how might this kind of love be a light to the world where the fault lines have been drawn? Now, I thought it would be most appropriate for me to have three points. Seems to be the way things are done. And Richard, bonus points, they're alliterative. So as we dig into the next section of this chapter, we'll see what it looks to live by love that protects the weak, love that limits liberty, and love that uplifts. So 
In Romans 14, starting at verse 13, the section of the passage begins with a pretty significant challenge. In the previous section, Paul set up this discussion about the weak and the strong in faith as the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome worked out the implications of the gospel for their lives. The weak were still figuring things out. Paul doesn't shy away from the fact that he agrees with the strong. And here he urges the strong to protect the weak. Have a look at verse 13. Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of one another. And in verse 15, do not let what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. The stakes are high here. Paul is saying that by continuing to argue about these disputable matters, the strong may be holding views or acting in a way that is putting at risk the faith of those who are still working out their faith in practice. It's worth remembering here, as Richard pointed out last week, that this is not a debate about theology. It's about discipleship issues, areas of the faith where a reasonable argument can be made either way in the interpretation of scripture, the small things where there's room for disagreement. Richard gave some examples of these last week. Infant versus adult baptism, women preaching, the type of songs we should sing in church, what TV shows are okay for Christians to watch, whether or not Christians should drink alcohol, what leadership structure a church should have, how much money to give to Christian mission and ministry and how much to keep for yourself, which political party you should vote for, how Christian parents should discipline their kids. It's on these matters, or these sorts of matters, there are probably more as well, that Paul is urging the strong to try and not, to not try and convince the weak that they are wrong, as it may inadvertently lead our brothers and sisters to trip and fall, to be snared in their walk in the faith. I wonder if there are times where you felt judged by another brother or sister to the point where you've questioned whether Christian community is really worth it. Or perhaps you felt led into a particular sin by a brother or sister, perhaps gossip or drunkenness or pride or self-righteousness. Or perhaps you felt like the Christian walk is just too hard because of the division of the church over these minor matters. It's this that Paul is warning against in this section. How can we protect each other, particularly those who are still figuring out what it means to live a gospel-shaped life from getting tripped up? through a love that limits liberty, point two. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to be right. I am the eldest of four children and I'm a teacher, so I'm used to people listening to what I say and then following what I do. Um, my siblings do that less and less now, unfortunately, which is a shame. Um, but our family dinner table conversations usually end up in some heated discussion about politics or religion or grammar, um, where everyone is vying for supremacy. I have an eldest son now who's continuing on in this particular family trait. We have a great, I couldn't be bothered embedding it into a thing. I'll show you another time. I have a great video of Charlie as a two-year-old passionately arguing that the stegosaurus on his T-shirt was in fact an armadillo. He was wrong. But boy, was he convinced he was right. And he defended his view to the hilt. We live in this culture that is obsessed with being right. We fact check each other. We call out the fake news. We are on the hunt for confirmation bias. In the absence of a clear truth, we still like to know we know more than they know. At the same time, we speak of tolerance. I'm not going to tell you how to live, but you don't tell me how to live either. You do you. I do me, 
because let's be honest, I'm right. But I'll be politically correct, just silently or passive-aggressively judging you over here from my um, view from the higher ground. Now, this so-called broad-mindedness that pervades our culture is not love. In this passage, we're called to love others in a way that limits our own liberty. It is the opposite of what our society calls tolerance. Let's look at the passage again. Verse 15. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And in verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Paul is saying that if you're going to create division by arguing so hard for your rights or ideas or your freedom or by flaunting your own liberty in the face of those who do not agree with it, then you're no longer walking in love. And worse, you're distorting the gospel itself. Overstating the importance of small matters can have the effect of destroying the work of God. It seems that the work of God here is referring to Christian community, the kingdom of God. Read verse 17 with me. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The antidote to division in Christian community is righteousness and peace and joy. These are the qualities we're called to pursue as followers of Jesus. This isn't saying that we can't disagree, but to look at our hearts when we do. What is our posture towards others? Do we enjoy being right? Do we enjoy talking about how narrow-minded other people are? As I've reflected on this passage over the past few weeks, I've felt particularly convicted of my own sinful dismissal of others who I disagree with, my lack of humility, my self-righteousness. The call here is not to let matters that are not is to not let matters that are not essential to the faith divide us. Matters on which committed and sincere Christians may disagree. To foster unity in the church by urging us to limit our liberty, our rights to believe a certain thing or engage in a certain practice for the sake of salvation of others. So we need to be aware of what the stumbling blocks are for those among us in our church community and in our lives. To look where we can put aside the disputable matters for the sake of gospel proclamation. And again, the stakes are high. Paul reminds us of how we are seen by the culture around us. If you're insisting on your views are so important that you have to divide the church over them or separate a brother or sister who does not believe as you do on a minor matter, if we do this, then we're running the risk of sending the message that Christianity is about what you do or what you do not do. If we cause distress and disunity within the community, we also run the risk of bringing the gospel into disrepute with those outside the kingdom. We draw more fault lines, create more barriers in a world that is already so divided. Instead, we're being called to pursue peace instead of personal freedom, to let others into our lives, to refrain from the things that harm them, to try and understand them even when we disagree with them. It's a hefty task, isn't it? I think that's why Paul uses the word resolve in verse 13. It takes an active commitment. It's hard. So how can we do this? By lifting our gaze and pursuing a love that uplifts. The passage is urging us to accept and receive one another and lift each other up. 
not to keep each other at arm's length or stick to the subjects where we have common ground, not to say, well, that person's sensitivity is not my problem. Instead, we're being urged by Paul to give up things for those who we are in Christian community with, to bear the burdens of the weak, to get under those burdens and shoulder them together. In verse 19, he says, Let us, therefore, make every effort to pursue peace that makes for mutual upbuilding. Peace here refers to the shalom that is experienced in, within the Christian community. Paul's suggesting there's an opportunity for us to serve and build one another up by the way we engage with each other on disputable matters. And it's important because, as Paul noted, has noted, there's a real danger. See, we don't know what's going on in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. And I think this is perhaps why Paul finishes this section with a final epigram about our conscience. In verses 22 and 23, he writes, The faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Blessed are those who have no reason to condemn themselves because of what they approve. But those who have doubts are condemned if they eat because they do not act from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, we're all in danger of falling into sin stumbling on the path as we walk in faith. We each have our own faith in God, a faith that is between him and us. But we don't know each other's conscience and we all individually will be held account before the, before the Lord. We wrestle with our own sin and weakness. But at the same time, we live in community. We need each other as we walk together in faith to lift each other up along the way to help to lift our gaze rather than tear each other down. But it's only through the power of him who was lifted up on the cross for us that we're able to do this. See, Jesus is the ultimate example of love that conquers sin. Jesus is what makes us clean. He was lifted onto the cross in the ultimate act of peace. He gave up everything so that we could be reconciled. Breaking down the divisions between the Jews and the Gentiles, offering grace to all people, regardless of the barriers that define us, whether it be race, wealth, gender, age, knowledge, status. In a world where the rights and freedoms of tribal groups are at loggerheads, we have an opportunity as a community to show a better way, a way of love and unity, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. We need to look to Jesus to be able to put aside the small things, the discipleship matters or points of difference that may be a stumbling block to one another, to be transparent and vulnerable with each other about the areas of our lives where we struggle with sin, to know each other well enough, to know each other's consciences, to know where we might be putting somebody else in a compromising position, to not keep a wide berth from those who we disagree with. In the moments of division in our community, we need to lift our gaze to him who so limited his own freedom that he gave his life. To him who gave his son to destroy the fault lines that had been created because of our sin. In the world that looks to what divides, let us look to what unites. We are his people, lifting each other up, even when we disagree, walking together in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
It is a big ask that we have um, read about today in Romans 14, to limit our own freedom and our liberty for the sake of others. And Lord, we look to you as the ultimate example of self-sacrificial love. We thank you for your example, for your life given to us on the cross, and we pray that we will be able to walk in love, knowing you loved us this much. Amen.